Tonight, I'm going to start a, a new sermon series through the last five Psalms of the book of Psalms, Psalms 146 through 150. You might know that I just finished 2 Peter, that was about two and a half months ago, and following in Troy's footsteps, I'm alternating between Old and New Testament, so I wanted to go back to the Old Testament, and I also wanted to do a shorter sermon series, so I didn't want to go through numbers or Isaiah, so I was looking for a shorter block, a shorter section of scripture, and preferably in a genre that I haven't preached on before. So I've done a minor prophet, I've preached in the Proverbs, I've done some historical First and Second Kings, so I had been reading through Psalms and I thought, let's, let's do a series in these five Psalms. So that's why we're jumping into Psalm 146 tonight. Before I read our passage, let me pray for us. Let's pray. Father, your word says that the one you esteem is the one who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at your word. Help us to be that person tonight, to be humble and contrite in spirit, trembling at your word. May you speak to us powerfully by your spirit, knowing that this is your very inspired word. So we pray that. We ask for your help, and we thank you for our great high priest, Jesus Christ, who intercedes for us and who is always ready to help us. So we pray in his name and thank you for the gift of your word. Amen. I encourage you to follow along and either in your worship guide or, or in your Bibles, and I will... This is a psalm that I've been memorizing, so I will recite it for you. So please follow along in in one way or another. Psalm 146. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, He returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations, praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Notice the bookends of this psalm. Notice how it begins in verse 1. Praise the Lord. And how does it end? At the end of verse 10, praise the Lord. If you have your Bible, look at Psalm 147. How does Psalm 147 begin? Praise the Lord. How does it end in verse 20? Praise the Lord. Look at Psalms 148, 149, and 150. Can you guess how all of these begin and end? Praise the Lord. Lord. Did you know that about these five psalms? 
These five psalms that end the entire book all begin and end with the words, praise the Lord. They begin and end with two Hebrew words that you all know by heart. Trust me. What are those two Hebrew words? Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. These five psalms all begin and end with the words, Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. But this is more than just interesting. It's not just Bible trivia. Think with me for a few moments about the entire book of Psalms. Think with me about all 150 Psalms. When you study them, you see that there's an order, a sequence. They weren't randomly put into the order that we have in our Bibles. There's a progression, a flow, a movement. You could say that the book of Psalms tells a story. You could put it in different ways, but simply put, it's a story of lament to praise. Lament to praise. So it's a story that begins with lament. As you might know, the book of Psalms is filled with lament. Lament is probably the most common type of psalm. But where do we find the psalms of lament? Mostly in the beginning and middle of the book. What happens as you keep reading? As you keep reading, there's a shift. There are less and less psalms of lament, and there are more and more psalms of praise. So think about this. The psalmists, think about all of them. They use the words hallelujah for the first time, get this, for the first time in Psalm 102. 102. Think about that. You won't find hallelujah in Psalms 1 all the way through 101. We find hallelujah for the first time in Psalm 102 and 26 times after that. By the time we get to Psalms 146 to 150, these words, hallelujah, begin and end every psalm. I like to think of these five psalms these five Psalms, 146 through 150, as like the finale of a fireworks show. It's been a while since we've seen fireworks, or maybe you saw them for New Year's or New Year's Eve. But you know what it's like to get to the end of a fireworks show. There's a pause, maybe a minute long, and you know they're about to light the final barrage. You know the finale is coming. And then it goes off. The windows shake The sky lights up, and it's amazing. You see fireworks like never before. Well, that's what these five psalms are like. The book of Psalms that begins with lament ends with a finale of spectacular, exuberant, exultant praise. That's how the book ends. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And why does that matter? Why does that matter for us as God's people tonight? Why does it matter that this book, the book of Psalms, moves from lament to praise? Let me point out two things. First, this matters because this was the pattern for the life of Christ. Lament, then praise. The pattern for the life of Christ was lament, then praise. Suffering, then glory. You could say that from womb to tomb. 
From womb to tomb, the life of Christ was one of lament and suffering and humiliation. But that's not how his story ended. No, he rose from the grave. He ascended to heaven. He's sitting now at God's right hand, and he will come to judge the world. So in Christ's life, what do we see? Humiliation, then exaltation. Lament, then praise. Suffering, then glory. This is also the pattern for our lives as Christians. Not just for the life of Christ. Think about your life as a Christian. The pattern for our lives is lament, followed by praise. As those who bear the name of Christ, as those who are called Christians, we are called to follow in his footsteps, to be in Christ. To use those words, in Christ is to participate first in his sufferings, and then to participate in his glory. So what does this mean? This means that as a Christian, you should expect to suffer in the year ahead. You should expect suffering in one way or another. We should all expect temptations, pain, death, conflict. We should expect loss, disappointments, hurt, grief, trials, persecution, and the list goes on. In other words, we're still in the lament section of the Psalms. As John Newton put it, if Christ walked a path of thorns, should we expect to walk a path of roses? If Christ, our Savior, walked a path of suffering, should we expect to walk a path of comfort, of ease? No, because we are Christians, we should expect to lament in 2022. And that's a sobering thought, but a true thought. We should expect that. But the book of Psalms, in its very form, lament to praise, reminds us that the story of our lives has already been written. The last chapter has already been written. The ending chapter is not lament, but praise. It's not suffering, it's glory. We're following in the footsteps of Christ. The book of Psalms moves from lament to praise, and so does our lives. So do our lives in Christ. Because we are Christians, we look forward by faith to glory. I wanted to point that out as we start this short series on these five Psalms. Psalm 146 helps us to look forward by faith to glory. In the midst of suffering, it lifts our eyes to the final chapter of our story and says, this is what is to come. The best is yet to come, as Troy reminded us this morning. It reminds us of who sits on the throne in the midst of any and every suffering. And so, with that in mind, let's look at Psalm 146. Let's look at this first psalm in this Five Psalm series. It's a psalm of descriptive praise. Psalms of descriptive praise follow a very basic pattern. They begin with a call to praise, they give us a cause for praise, and they end with a renewed call to praise. 
So there's the alliteration, the three C's. A call to praise, a cause for praise, and a renewed call to praise. A number of psalms all follow this pattern, and this is one of them. So with that in mind, it begins with a call to praise. That's what we see in verses 1 and 2. So here are those verses once again. Here's the call to praise. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. It's a plural imperative as this psalm begins. Praise the Lord. That's a plural imperative. It's a command for all of us, for the congregation. It's a, think of it as a call to worship. Praise the Lord. And how does the psalmist respond? How does the psalmist respond? Well, you could say that he listens. He turns to himself and says, yes, I must praise the Lord. I will join in. Praise the Lord, O my soul. He hears the call to worship. She hears the call to worship and resolves to participate. He talks to himself. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord, Colin. As we think about As we think about what the psalmist says here, praise the Lord, O my soul, as we think about the psalmist speaking to himself, I wanted to share a quote from Paul David Tripp. He wrote this. He wrote, No one is more influential in your life than you are because no one talks to you more than you do. Shall I say that again? No one is more influential in your life than you are because no one talks to you more than you do. And it's true. It's true. The most influential person in my life is me. I am in a never-ending conversation with myself. And so are you. Each one of us is in a never-ending conversation with ourselves. We are the most important people. We're always talking to ourselves. So the question is, what are we telling ourselves to do? What are we speaking to ourselves? And the psalmist says here, praise the Lord. Colin, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Listen to this this big, sweeping, soaring vision of praise. The psalmist says, I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Think about that as a vision for 2022. Think about that as a goal for 2022. As long as I live, as long as I have my being, as long as something can come out of my mouth, as long as I can breathe and talk and sing, I will praise the Lord. But what can support that kind of vision? What can undergird and ground such a vision for our lives? A few, months ago, a few moments ago, I said that we should expect suffering in the year ahead. As Christians, we should expect suffering. Well, in the midst of suffering that's to come, in the midst of suffering that we're experiencing right now, what reason do we have to praise the Lord? Our lives of praise can only rise so high as our foundation is deep. What reason do we have to praise the Lord when life is hard? What 
reason do we have to keep singing when life is hard? Here's the vision. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. Well, how can I do that in the midst of suffering? What enables me to do that? Or who enables me to do that? Okay. Two options. Is the Democratic Party our reason for praise? If only, if only President Biden can unite the progressives and moderates and move forward. Is the Republican Party our reason for praise? If only, if only the Republicans can take back a few Senate seats in the midterm elections later this year. If only. Well, the psalm tells us where to not put our trust. Verses 3 and 4 say, Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. As we think about this verses, we, these verses, we have to ask the question, the personal, the personal question, the personal application. Who are the princes that we turn to? Who are the people that you put your trust in? Now that person might be a social elite, someone that everyone knows. He might be someone that no one knows, a social nobody. She might be a princess or a peasant. But who are we putting our trust in? Who are we turning to? Or we could say, whose praises are we singing? It literally could be anybody. It could be anybody a politician, a political party, it could be a pastor, a boss, an employer, an employee, a spouse, a child, someone else in our family. It could be a teacher or a student, a coach, a team, an athlete, a friend. It really could be anybody. So how do we know? How do we know if we're doing what the psalm says to not do? How do I know if I'm putting my trust in a prince in whom there is no salvation? One indicator, as we think about that, one indicator is often our emotional response to someone's success or failure. One indicator is often our emotional response to someone's success or failure. I say that because our emotions so often reflect, they reveal who or what is nearest and dearest to our hearts. So you can think about scanning your day, scanning your weekend, scanning the past week for your big emotions. Where were they? When, when your princess succeeds, what are your emotions telling you? If you can't stop thinking or talking about her, if you can't stop singing her praises, when she succeeds and you are exalting over her, well, you might be putting your trust in someone who can't save you. Or when your prince fails, what are your emotions telling you? If you are angry and fearful, if you are devastated, undone, very well might be putting your trust in someone who can't save you. Our emotions so often reveal 
the prince that we're putting our trust in. As we think about this, as I think about this, I think, is it any wonder that we struggle to praise the Lord? Is it any wonder that we struggle to praise the Lord? How can we praise Him when our hearts are caught up in the praises of others? Does that make sense? How can we praise Him when our day-to-day trust is actually in someone else, not in Him? Our trust in man muffles our praise for God. Our trust in man will muffle any praise for God. So who are you putting your trust in? As you think about this, put not your trust in princes and a son of man in whom there is no salvation. Who might that be for you? For me, as I think about this, one person stands out more than anyone else. Who do I view as more than a man, as someone who can really save me? Who do I I love to trust and depend on and praise? If I'm honest, that person is so often myself. I'm the prince I'm putting my trust in. So this speaks to me. Colin, put not your trust in yourself. You cannot save yourself. Put not your trust in princes. People of God, put not your trust in princes. These verses, 3 and 4, they call us to repentance. They call us to turn from putting our trust in people or in ourselves. So the word for us is repent and trust, not in a prince, but in the Lord your God. Verse 5, that's where this psalm moves. Verse 5 says, Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob whose hope is in the Lord his God. So he is our help. He is our hope. Put your trust in him. Do that, and you are blessed. Do that, and you are blessed. I want to point something out from verse 5. It says, blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob. The God of Jacob. Really? Think about that with me. The God of Jacob? God would define himself as being the God of Jacob. Let me remind you that the name Jacob means he cheats. And it was a fitting name. It was a suitable name for that patriarch. Jacob wanted the birthright, and he cheated to get it. He wanted the blessing, and he cheated to get it. Jacob was someone who put his trust in himself and cheated to get what he wanted. But God was merciful to this cheater. He didn't give Jacob what he deserved. In fact, he graciously promised to bless him. By the end of the story, Jacob turned 180 degrees. I recently read through Genesis, and the change is remarkable. In fact, God gives him a new name, Israel. We find Jacob saying something like this to his family. Listen to this. In light of his history, he says, put away the foreign gods that are among you. Put away the foreign gods. Stop worshiping idols. Let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. That's that's Jacob saying that. 
Friends, our God is the God of Jacob. Do you find that hopeful? Do you find that encouraging? Do you find that reassuring? If God is the God of Jacob, then he can be the God of Colin. He can be your God. The same God who is gracious to Jacob is the God who is gracious to you. The same God will answer you in the day of your distress. The same God will be with you wherever you go. The Lord our God is the God of sinners. He's the God of Jacob. He's my God. He's your God. The God of Jacob. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob. As we look now at verses 6 to 9, on the one hand, these verses describe the people of God, mostly. And I say mostly because at the end of verse 9, there's a brief reference to the wicked. So except for that reference, these verses, on the one hand, describe the people of God. They describe a people who are desperate for his hope and help. Look at this list. They are oppressed, hungry, imprisoned, blind, bowed down. They are righteous, sojourners, widowed, and fatherless. As we look at this list, I think each one of us, as we stop and think about it, as we reflect, as we meditate, each one of us can identify with something, or maybe several things in this list. Some Christians are literally widows, fatherless, blind, imprisoned, oppressed. Some Christians are literally sojourners with no home to speak of. For other Christians, I think these descriptions are true maybe in a broader sense. You may not be blind, but you may be in need of some kind of healing, some kind of physical healing. You may not be hungry, but you may be very anxious about a financial situation. You may not be in prison, but some situations or sins or sufferings make you feel trapped. You may not be a widow, but your husband might be deployed for months in the army. These verses describe God's people who are desperate for his help. But they also describe our God. What is true of him? What's true of him? He is our help and our hope. And he is more than enough. He is the perfect, all-sufficient help for every single one of his people's needs. You can think about verses 6 through 9 as a catalog of God's needy people. His needy people. Here are all of their needs. Well, just alongside that list is a list of who God is. He's the perfect match. Are you hungry? He feeds the hungry. Are you oppressed? He executes justice. Are you a widow or fatherless? Well, if he is the one who upholds you. So how are, let me ask you, how are you needy? How are you weak? How are you feeling discouraged? Where is the suffering in your life? Psalm 146 says that God, God is your hope. God is your help. These verses describe your God, your king who sits on his throne. Let me share a story to illustrate these truths that we're thinking about together. 
Becky and I somewhat recently learned about a couple's need for food. They needed food. And thankfully, this couple's church was able to quickly provide what they needed. Now, Becky followed up with a card and sent some additional money. We had reason to think that they not only needed food, but they also needed gas money. They didn't ask for the gas money, but we thought they very well may need some money for gas. So Becky sent a card to this couple and said, we're praying for you, we're thinking of you, here's some money for food or for gas. And I share this story with uh, the couple's permission. But it turns out that they needed money for gas. They needed money for gas, but weren't asking for it. One of the spouses, the, the wife, admitted to saying, it's okay to ask the church for food. You know, meal trains, that's the thing. But gas, that's, you don't ask the church for money for gas. And so can you imagine this, this couple's response when they get Becky's card and she says, here's some money for gas. She wrote back to us. This, uh, this wife wrote back to us and she expressed both her sense of conviction and her newfound faith. And let me share what she wrote. She said, Not only did I not think God was capable of providing, I didn't even bother to ask him. And through your generosity, he told me that he is enough. I will forever keep your card as a reminder that he will always provide, even when I disagree or think otherwise. Thank you for everything you did. I think that's what this psalm is getting at. I think this psalm is saying, where is your need? Where is your suffering? Well, your God is a match. He is more than a match. He is your hope. He is your help. He is enough. He really is. That's what this psalm is saying. He is enough. He is our forever reigning king, and he's more than a match for any and every need that we have as his people. Now, you might be wondering, okay, that's true, but, yes, but. For example, yes, the Lord sets the prisoners free. Praise the Lord. You think of Joseph. You think of Daniel. You think of others in Scripture. The Lord sets the prisoners free. That's true. But can you think of others who were killed in prison? What happened to John the Baptist? What happened to James? What happened to others? Maybe you heard this fall about how that gang in Haiti captured a number of missionaries. I'm not sure if you were tracking that story at all. A gang abducted a number of missionaries. And about a month or so ago, I heard the amazing story about how a dozen or so of them escaped. They escaped. They, They literally escaped their captors. And so I read this. The Lord sets the prisoners free. That's it. God answers that prayer. But at the same time, at the same time, how many Christians, how many faithful Christians, how many God-fearing brothers and sisters in Christ have died at the hands of their captors? How many were never set free? What do we do with that as Christians? 
What do we do with that? Or think about something else. This says, these verses say, for example, he executes justice for the oppressed. And you might read that and think, amen, hallelujah, I have seen that fulfilled. I knew someone or I was in that situation and God executed justice. But you also might read that and think the very opposite. You might cry out to God, well, God, where is my justice? So far, you haven't delivered on your promise. Where is the justice? Where is it? So what do we do with that as Christians? Do you feel some of that tension as we reflect on this list? What do we do with that? I think what we do is, is we look forward in faith. We look forward in faith and believe. We lift our eyes to the day when every lament turns to praise. We look at where this whole book is pointing us. It's pointing us to the future. And we know that Christ will return. And when he does return, he will end all suffering. Every suffering mentioned in this psalm. One day the blind will see. The oppressed will have their justice. The imprisoned will be set free. That's because Jesus is the Son of Man in whom there is salvation. He's the Son of Man in whom there is salvation. He's not a prince. He's the King of Kings. There is salvation in him. He is the Son of God incarnate, God in the flesh. So everything that's true of the Lord in this psalm is true of King Jesus. The Lord. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind, etc. That's true of Jesus. But everything that's true of us in this psalm is also true of him. Or was true of him. He knows what it's like to be oppressed, to be hungry, to be bowed down, to be a sojourner. Think about that. That describes Christ or it describes his earthly life. Not now, but it, it did describe him. He knows what it's like to weep, to suffer, to be needy, to lament. So he knows our experience. He knows what this is like. He really does. He's a sympathetic, great high priest. But he doesn't know what it's like to put his trust in princes. He doesn't know what that's like. Unlike us, he perfectly trusted his father. If you think about a life of praise, well, Jesus lived it. Every moment of his life, every moment of his life was lived in praise to his father. And he did so even when obedience meant suffering and dying on a cross in the place of the wicked. So what does Psalm 146 do? It helps us to long for the return of our Savior. It helps us to long for our King's return. Lamenting and suffering, we follow in his footsteps now by faith. And when he returns, our suffering will give way to that finale, that fireworks finale of endless and perfect and spectacular praise. So will you not join in the worship now? By faith, by faith, will you not join in, join Zion, as it says here in verse 10, will you not join Zion, God's people, God's church, will you not join God's people now in praising the Lord? 
the Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. Amen.